Today is a Reformation Sunday. What is a Reformation Sunday? 504 years ago, exactly on October 31st, 1517, in Germany, Martin Luther posted his protest against the sales of indulgences on the door of All Saints Church in Wittenberg. Indulgences were a theological fraud and the heretical malpractice of a Roman Catholic Church in the medieval time that your offering, especially to church building funds, will shorten the time that your diseased family members have to spend in the purgatory. Indulgences were one of the worst false gospels in history, for it was kind of a spiritual fast pass from purgatory to heaven. Many joined Luther's protest, and later they are known as a protestant. And we are the heirs of a protestant, and we bow to continue biblical theology of a protestant tradition. One of the protestant traditions that I find more critically needed than before, this Latin phrase, Ecclesia Reformata Semper Reformanda, which means Reformed Church is always Reformed. Reformed Church is always Reformed. This phrase means the biblical principles of a Reformation in its gospel call must extend to every part of a life. Reformation did not end in the 16th century or in some key theological doctrines, but does continue in every generation until all of us fully reform to the image of Christ. In that sense, the book of James that we are studying and the Protestant Reformation share the same spiritual conviction, which is that theology and ethics, our belief and behaviors, go together. Our confession of God's grace must change every conduct of our life into good fruits of a divine love. Abraham Kuyper is a renowned Dutch uh, reformed theologian and one-time prime minister and the founder of a free university of Amsterdam expressed this ongoing nature of a reformation best when he said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of a human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign of all, does not cry, mine. I love this statement of uh, Abraham Kuyper because it is my prayer that all of us reform and transform ourselves until every inch of our life we can also shout, I am Christ. I am His because He is in me and He owns everything in me and I'm in Christ. Now, today's scripture, James chapter 4, verse 1 to 12, renders us these three crucial truths or steps to reform ourselves. So with that, let's read our text today. What causes fight and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desire that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motive, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, 
Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason he jealously longed for the Spirit he has a cause to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace? That is why Scripture says God opposed the proud but shows a favor to the humble. Submit yourself then to God and resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your heart, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone speaks against a brother or sister or judges them, speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and the judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Today's scripture is a continuation of the last week's James sermon on two wisdoms. Heavenly divine wisdom, earthly demonic wisdom. Do you remember what true wisdom was according to James? True wisdom was from God. And heavenly wisdom are relational, relational virtues. It is pure, it is a persevering, and it is peacemaking. In contrast, false wisdom is self-centered, envious, and chaotic. James today takes the dual of a two wisdom further into condemnation and challenge. He takes the call of a godly life with a heavenly wisdom several notches up as he intensifies his polemical languages. Do you notice or feel a very direct, personal, almost denouncing tone in this passage? Here James used the second person pronoun you or your for 35 times. This is a most direct passage with the most heated political, I mean, polemical expression. The key verse in today's passage is verse 4. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Do you know this is the only place in the Bible where we see the expression enemy of God? Enemy of God? You know, there are many people who oppose God, but this is a one and only place in the Bible the term enemy of God coined. And the most shocking point about this expression is that whom James was calling to be enemy of God. Enemy of God to James was not somebody who hated God or God's people. The enemy of God was, actual, was actually not secular atheist, nor some religious, other religious people, but he said, you adulterous people. Who is you? It's the Christians. It was the Christians who are drawn to the world. Christians with a worldliness. James called it, enemy of God. This strong condemnation and scary warning 
reminds me about what C.S. Lewis said in his famous sermon, Weight of Glory. There C.S. Lewis said, You and I have a need of a stronger spell that can be found to wake us up from evil enchantment of worldliness. Evil enchantment of a worldliness. Both C.S. Lewis and James recognize how thoroughly susceptible we Christians have been to enchantment of a worldliness and its enjoyment. And we need a strongest spell, such as this kind of a jolting rebuke, to wake ourselves up to God's call of godliness. So that's our ongoing reformation. Overcoming worldliness in our heart and in our culture, in our life, in our church with a godliness. So first we will look at the, uh, the, uh, the definition and also problems of a worldliness. And that's written in the verse 1 to 3. What causes fight and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want. So you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motive. That you may spend what you get on with your pleasure. If you look at this passage, in the verse 1, the desire, Greek word for verse 1, is the same actually word for pleasure in verse 3. Both words is a hedone, which means, you know, from which we have English word hedonism, pursuit of a pleasure. So what do you call it? There is a passage that begins same word beginning at the end, like a bookend. Call it inclusio, right? So inclusio of this short passage is a pleasure. So here's a definition for worldliness. Worldliness is a following pleasures of a world while forgetting and even forsaking pleasures of God. Let me repeat that. Worldliness is a following pleasures of the world while forgetting and even forsaking pleasures of God. A Jewish rabbi said, one day God will judge us on every desires and pleasures he blessed us with. That means we will be judged on every scorned pleasures of God that we rejected. Okay? Somebody else, you know, explained the worldliness in this way. Worldliness is a whatever make sin look normal and godliness look strange. Worldliness is a whatever make a sin look normal and godliness strange. And definitely this world is a full of that spirit. And now, what specific problem does a worldliness cause? James tells us the threefold problems of a worldliness which are closely connected. First, worldliness creates the external clashes. Verse 1, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Among you. Obviously, worldly, self-centered people always try to serve themselves first and never try to meet the needs of others before theirs. 
Thus, the fights and quarrels are constant condition of a worldness. Second James says, such external clashes actually come from internal conflict. So verse 2, he said, don't they come from your desire that battle within you? So worldliness, it has internal conflict as well as external clashes. And when it comes to Christian, this worldliness in Christians, you know, battle against uh, desires and the pleasures of God. And Apostle Paul, he described a similar inner conflict in Galatians 5.17. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and spirit what is contrary to the flesh. flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that they are not to do whatever they want. Do you know what the, who is the most miserable people in the world? They are not sinners or unsaved people. They don't know what good is. The most, un, most miserable people in the world is a carnal Christian who is trying to have a both. It's like a two-timers. And the James repeated this connection between the internal conflicts and external conflict in, in the, at the end of verse 2 one more time, that you covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You know, frustration caused by worldliness makes one angry, and anger is a, a, a sense of a killing or murdering. And then James tells us a, one more thing about the problem of a worldliness, that is, worldliness cripples Christians' prayer life. Worldliness damages, cripples Christians' prayer life. How? Worldliness make you, make, may, uh, makes us too focused in our desire. First of all, you forget, we forget to pray to God. James said, you do not have because you do not ask God. And the worst worldliness, not just to make you forget to pray, but mislead us to pray fruitlessly. Verse 3, when you ask, you do not have, because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. There was a very sovereign story in the Gospel of John, chapter 6, that talks about this. You know, when Jesus fed the multitude of 5,000 men and his family supernaturally, guess what happened? Those who are fed by Jesus, they're obsessed. They are obsessed with the Jesus' power to give a free food. So they relentlessly pursued Jesus, asking for the barley bread over and over again. And what did Jesus do? Jesus declined and rejected their request. Why? Not because they, he doesn't love them, but because he loved them. Actually, Jesus offered himself the bread of life. But they wouldn't take the bread of life. They would choose the barley bread over the bread of life. Worldliness mislead our prayers. And God has no choice but on a, on, you know, not to answer. By the way, sometimes we must remember some of the best answered prayers are when God said no. You know, since we are near the uh, Thanksgiving and month of reflection and, 
you know, Thanksgiving is closed. Let me ask you, have you thanked God for his negative answer to your prayer? Have you thanked God for his no? One time I read an interview, tele, uh, I, I, you know, I read an interview about the, uh, Garth Brooks. I talk a lot about the pop singers. Last week I talked about uh, Rinda Ronstadt. Now today is a Garth Brooks. I don't know who I'm talking about next week, but here it is. And uh, at the time, the interview, Garth, one of the Garth Brooks' uh, hit was the song titled Unanswered Prayer. Anybody heard of that song, Unanswered Prayer? And uh, when the, uh, David uh, uh, Frost asked the origin of the song, um, Garth Brooks said uh, it came to him after he and his wife ran into one of his old girlfriends in high school. And when he was going out with that girl, he, she was the one that he wanted to spend the rest of his life. So he prayed to God, God, bring us together. And obviously, it didn't work. And now that he met his wife, he said, the one prayer, he's so glad that God didn't answer was that prayer. So Garth Brooks said, sometimes the best prayers are the ones that God does not answer. Do you have those kind of prayers? I hope you share with other people. Did you know Actually, Reformation came from God's unanswered prayer too. I mean, uh, uh, Martin Luther's, you know, unanswered prayer, or God said no to Martin Luther. This is a Reformation Sunday. So I, I need to, you know, I, I, I want us to know a little bit about Reformation and especially about Martin Luther. Martin Luther is, to some degree, is very similar to many of us. He was born as a son of a miner. His father was a miner, you know, working in mining, it's a hard labor. So his father wants Luther not to become another miner, but succeed and, you know, move in the social ladder. So he sent him to college to become a university to become a lawyer. Just like many first-generation parents sacrifice their life, you know, for many of us, go to, you know, you know pursue the professional, you know, career and training. So Luther went to the university and one summer, after the summer break, he was riding back to university with his friend, classmate, and they are riding, you know, horses separately, but they are chatting and getting very close, and they caught the sudden thunderstorm, and the lightning came down, and they instantly killed Luther's friend. And Luther also fell from the horse. Can you imagine? You're just talking to someone, and the Split of second, that person was, uh, you know, completely burned to death. Luther, out of fear, cried out to God his prayer. And you know what Luther, how Luther prayed? Luther prayed, say then, save me, I shall be a monk. You know, I'll give up the, you know, law degree, law, you know, law, pursuing the law, and I'll be the monk. Who is the saying then? You know, this is a how bad Catholic theology was back then, or even some, some on today. You know, according to Catholic theology, Jesus is too high to pray. He's a son of God. So in order to pray to God, you have to go through sort of a people who are close to God. That is Mary, his mother. So you go to son through the mother. But by the medieval time, 
They said even Mary was too high for most people to reach. So you go through the Mary's mother. That is the same end. So that's how, you know, uh, medieval or, you know, Roman Catholics. So Luther, after the incident, went to the uh, Augustinian monastery and became a, a monk. And there, Luther has a PTSD, you know, post-traumatic syndrome, stress syndrome, because he can forget the terror and power of God against the sinner through the death of his close friend. So Luther confessed, you know, anytime he remembers sin, he confessed to God. He confessed, and the, you know, he confessed so often, his confessor was tired of Luther's, you know, Roman Catholic, you cannot confess alone. You have to go to confessional rite. You have to go to the booth, and that's where you confess, and the priests, whoever confesses, say, all right, recite, you know, you know, Hail Mary, whatever, you know, Rose. Luther's confessor was avoiding Luther. And one time, he pleaded him that, Luther, can you just gather sins together before you come? I'm busy, you know. Luther's problem was that, what about the sins that I don't remember? Even though I forgot, God remembers, and I'll be judged. He was under constant stress of his sinfulness, and he was paranoid about his sins. So much so that one day his confessor told him, you're Luther, we heard that you went to university, so you know how to read. Back then, most uh, priests, including monks, they don't know how to read. Illiteracy was very high. They just memorized uh, all the Latin phrases for the worship. That's how they got by. So they hit the confessor and said, why don't you read Bible, especially book of Psalm? Because Psalm has a very, you know, emotional encounter with God. So read a Psalm will help you. So Luther began to read a book of Psalm. And when it comes to Psalm 22, Luther was shocked. Because Psalm 22 begins what? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the Luther was shocked because... That's exactly he felt about God. He felt God completely forsook him. And the guy was uh, after him. So Luther was saying, who felt this, this way? And then he realized this is not a David. Ultimately, this is what Christ felt and prayed on the cross. And that's where Luther realized Christ was in my place on the cross. That's why to find me, to save me, he was forsaken and suffered. So do you know, Reformation, in a way, happened because Luther's original prayer to become a great lawyer, whatever, successful lawyer, didn't work out. Or even to just receive God's forgiveness. So, what are the prayers that God said, no, that you are so grateful now. You know, on that part that aren't we all glad God didn't, you know, answer the Jesus' first prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus said, if possible, remove this cup from me. You know, if God answered it, where would, where would be? Where would we? Where would, would us be? We would be. 
Now, speaking about the finding, let's really find the true focus of our ongoing reformation, that is a godliness. So answer to worldliness is a godliness. What is a godliness? I want us to know that godliness is not a piety or pious feeling or even holy rituals that we go through. Godliness comes only from God and is a holy impact on us. God's holy presence in our hearts and minds creates godly perspective of our life and much more cultivate godly practice. I like what the British evangelical pastor, old generation pastor, W. Ian Thomas said. He said, for godliness, it's not the consequence of your capacity to imitate God, but consequence of his capacity to reproduce himself in you. Not self-righteousness, but Christ's righteousness, the righteousness which is by faith. That's what James tells us to do. Instead of pursuing carnal pleasures of a worldliness, James calls us to return to God and recover our glorious identity. And then, God will reflect himself on us through our glorious identity. So what is our glorious identity? For that, look at the verse 4. You adulterous people. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. You know, the term that you adulterous people in Greek text is actually simpler, and they actually used a, a female, uh, uh, female plural. So that's why New American Standard Bible translated it, you adulteresses, you adulteresses. And uh, this is a shocking because up to now, James was calling his, you know, audience brothers and sisters, or even my dear brothers and sisters. And he called them now adulteresses, adulteresses. Has anybody called you adulteresses? Well, Bible calls, you, calls us adulteresses. For me, this a harsh rebuke is actually has a highest revelation. This is an incredibly paradoxical you know, truth. That is, you cannot be adulterous unless you're married to someone. In order to be adulterous, you have to have a husband. Right? So, when James called Christians, worldly, uh, worldly Christians, or Christians with a worldliness, adulteresses, what is he reminding us of? We are brides of God, brides of Christ. And God is our husband. Look at the Isaiah 54, verse 5. Your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He's called the God of all the earth. Isaiah saying, your maker is your husband, Israel. And he's not just a, 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 any husband. He is a God Almighty, creator of everything. 
And later when Israelites committed adultery, guess what prophet Jeremiah called? I mean, idolatry? He called that idolatry adultery or unfaithfulness. Jeremiah chapter 3.20. Like a woman unfaithful to husband, you Israel have been unfaithful to me, declares God. It is a Hosea that this imagery reaches the pinnacle that Lord commands Hosea to marry a prostitute. So her unfaithfulness painfully reveals the tragic idolatry of Israel with a foreign God. So this marital imagery between God and his people is a very you know, consistent in the Bible. And even picked up by Jesus later in the Matthew you know, 12 and Matthew chapter 12, 39. When people rejected Jesus, what did Jesus call them? A wicked, adulterous generation. Wicked, adulterous generation. So, what is our glorious identity? That God is our husband. We are God's wife. You know, that means this. We bring a great pleasure to God. At the same time, we can bring most unimaginable pain to God. This is a paradoxical, you know, uh, truth about ourselves. The amazing, you know, grace and the shocking truth is that I can affect God. We can grieve God or glorify God. Have you thought about that? And I have to, I, we have to recognize God's pain comes from His love for us. So for me, this expression, you adulteresses, is shocking, but at the same time, it's, sobering. it's not just sombering, but it's so sweet. Because it reminds me that uh, I matter to God, just like my wife matters to me, or I matter to my wife. James now connects the adultery in this passage to wrong friendship. You adulterous people, don't you know the friendship with the world means enmity against God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. All right. Some people might wonder, what's wrong about our spouse to have some friends beside me? You know, we need to remember the friendship in the antiquity was much more taken seriously than today's friendship in the Western world. Today, we call anybody friend, right? Hey, friend, right? Casually. Ancient people, there's nothing about friendship. I mean, nothing casual about friendship. Being a friend in the ancient world is a very careful decision, almost calculating. And because friendship means a lifelong pact between people who sh with a shared values and royalties. So Aristotle once said, while family relationship is ascribed or signed, friendship is a genuine human relationship achieved because it is based on mutual administration and trust and loyalty. So here, friend of the world, it is more than just, you know, somebody fooling around the world. We're talking about 
someone committing spiritual, metaphorical adultery. Now, James and, uh, Jamie and I, we are, let me, let me illustrate. Jamie and I, we just started a new stage of our life called the emptiness. I found out that our children vacated not only our houses, but our minds. You know, there's some truth in the cliche that out of sight, out of mind. So Jamie and I, now we ask more questions about each other and each other's day more deeply than before. And uh, I feel like we are back in the dating stage again. Only this time is better because it's cheaper. You know, when I dated her before we married, I have to, I have to score well. So I have to take a very expensive restaurant. I was a poor pastor, so I have to use a coupon, you know. And then later I heard the family, her family called, told me a coupon man, but I didn't care. But these days, I don't care, you know. Once again, it's not food we eat, but with whom you eat, so, you know. So imagine, while I'm focusing on my wife, I found out that she was actually bonding with someone else, you know, work. And this guy, and she was dreaming his dream. And especially if that guy is a pretender and imposter. Can you imagine my jealousy and frustration? And that's what verse 5 talks about. Do you think the scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit? He has a cause to dwell in us. God gave us Holy Spirit. The gift of God. That Jesus, you know, left behind another counselor so that you and I can be like a Christ. This is the greatest, you know, gift God gave us. You know, I don't have to go through the entire, you know, Old Testament theology, but Holy Spirit was given only few selected people. But through Christ, anybody now can receive the Spirit of God in their heart. This is a greatest gift. Yet, we are ignoring Holy Spirit and following the spirit of the world. Can you imagine how shocking and painful to God? And here we must remember, God is jealous, not for himself, but for us. God's jealousy is a holy jealousy. In what? It's not a, God is not a guilty lover for his own bruised ego, but God is a hurt because we're going a wrong way. God's jealousy is because of his concern for us. And good news is that when we remember God's supreme love for us and return to him, James said, God gives us more grace. Verse 6, he gives us more grace. This is why scripture says, God opposed the proud, but shows a favor to the humble. Here, James quotes the Proverbs 3, verse 34. God marks the proud mockers, but shows a favor to humble and oppressed. For James to return in God means uh, going to God in humility. And once again, James emphasizes humility in this passage. If you look at the verse 6 and verse 10, the humility comes out again. God gives them more grace, and then and God opposes the proud, but shows a favor to the humble, verse 6, and look at the verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will lift you up. So again, the humility is the bookend of this passage. And between these uh, two, you know, inclusive of humility, James packed, packed 
the call for repentance, call to return to God in a very classical, classic language of repentance in the Bible. So two things he sends out is this. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your heart, you are double-minded. This is based on the priestly purity. You know, washing and, uh, washing and purifying is what the priest needs to do before they you know, do the holy service. And the hands and heart means uh, these and dispositions. So clean hands and pure heart, this is a requirement of those who come to God. So Psalm 24 said, Who may ascend to the mountain of the Lord? Who stand in his holy place? One who has a clean heart and a pure, uh, clean, clean hands and a pure heart. And then James go to the second, second expression. That those who come to, uh, 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 James, that another, you know, uh, classic language of repentance, but this time very prophetic. Grieve, mourn, wail, change your laughter to the morning and your joy to gloom. This is a typical prophetic call to Israelite. This is not a time to laugh. It's a time to mourn and cry out to God. And James, why is James saying that? If we don't seek God with a humility and desperation, in our own strength, we are no match to Satan and devil. And devil can deceive us and destroy us. You know, good news about the godliness or God's grace to the humble is that with God, we can overcome devil. Amen? You know, I just want to say this. Halloween totally uh, uh, messes uh, this, not just the Christian tradition, but the people's understanding of uh, dark forces. Either you make a fun of the Halloween, like a trick or treat, you know, I mean, what is a treat? I mean, trick or treat. You know, devil's trick is a, is a deadly. Or they come up with all kinds of horror movies to make us, uh, you know, too fearful. The secular way of a Halloween is a maker, you know, underestimate it as a fun, overestimate some kind of, a, you know, spooky thing about everything. Bible says very clearly, with God, we can withstand devil. We can resist the devil. Much more devil will flee from us. Do you know, when we follow God humbly, Spirit of God is strong in our heart, and the one who is in us is greater than one who is in the world. So James commands us, seek God in humility, and God, you will be clothed with the power. Now, final ongoing reform to overcome worldliness with the godliness takes a final application in the life of a community. And that is verse 11 and 12. And here, I want to say that godliness is not a solitary, but social. It, godliness always manifests, not just you and me, I mean God and me, but also in relationship with others. So look at the verse 11. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting on judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? 
What makes a community healthy and flourishing? What makes a you know, relationship healthy and flourishing? It is compassionate communication of love and truth. Let me repeat that. Compassion, compassionate communication and love and truth, that makes relationship and community safe and strong. You know, communication makes or breaks a, a community or relationship. Why was James was warning against the slandering? You know, slandering is a worldly communication of a false judgment. It is false judgment because God is ultimate judge of all. You know, we are not ultimate judge of all. What, what, God, what, we, what God called us to do is not to make a judgment, but to make a faithful discernment when it comes to somebody making a wrong decision or somebody who is misbehaving. So, about using a By the way, Bible never speak. Bible never, Jesus never told us not to judge. We need a judgment to live a life. But there's a wrong judgment and the right judgment. Look at the Matthew chapter 7. Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged with the measure that you use. You, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye? Pay no attention to the plank in your own eyes. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eyes when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, then you will see clearly, remove, clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. You know what Jesus condemns is a hypocritical judgment. By the, sec- by, by the same token, Jesus called us for not a hypocritical judgment, but healthy judgment. There is a healthy judgment in this story, in this passage. What is a healthy judgment? Listen to me carefully. Healthy judgment is a confessional and mutual and loving. Okay? Confessional because in healthy judgment, you admit that you also have a plank in your own eyes. You know, so when you see somebody's mistake, you re- reflect yourself. And many times, we, we have a similar mistake too. It's a mutual because Jesus said you have to examine each other's eye. It's a loving because we have to supposed to take a speck, remove the speck from our you know, neighbor's eyes. This is not the first time James talking about speaking kindly. We already saw James telling us the wise person is the one who knows how to control his tongue and use for love in chapter 3. Here James, you know, returns the language of, uh, you know, brothers and sisters from his earlier, you know, harsh language of adulterers or sinners and double-minded. So we can see this is a final James, you know, sort of a pastoral care in this passage. Very tender, loving pastor care. And here... James was re-emphasizing the loyal love that he called earlier in two, you know, chapter 2, verse 8. Do you remember? The love your neighbor is yourself. That is the law of all law. Royal love. King's love. The top law. And this top law of loving your neighbor as yourself 
comes from Leviticus 19, verse 18. But guess what? Before verse 18, there's a verse 16, which qualifies the loyal law, which is a loving neighbor with what? Kind speaking. In order to love your neighbor, you have to speak kindly. So Leviticus 19.16 said, Do not go about the spreading slander among your people. Do, do not do anything that endanger your neighbor's life. I am the Lord. God is calling the attention. Do not slander. Because slandering destroys the community and relationship. And the, I am the Lord of a relationship and community. Let me confirm very important truth here. Godliness to overcome worldliness. Exercise kindness, gentleness, and truthfulness, especially in speaking to others and about others. Godliness is about relating to others kindly, gently, and truthfully as a God treats us. And godly people do not delight other people's mistake and quickly jump on the careless you know, judgment. Godly people or people of a godliness, you know, people of a godlikeness, they pray for them and look for the time to speak them in humility and gentleness. And when we do that, that's how the unity that God desires, the love and pleasure that God wants to bless us with will come to us and we will flourish as a godly people on earth. Let's pray. Before we pray, while we're praying, let me ask you. Can you confidently say you are a friend of God? Or are you a friend of the world? Where is your heart these days? Are you excited? Are you grateful? Are you so humbled by His love? and his presence in your life, that you matter to him more than anything else in this world. You know that your future is a brighter as God's love for you. Though you have challenges in life, do you know Jesus is your shepherd, is going before you, with you, with his angels and his people. Are you sidetracked with whatever worldly material concerns and temptations? God calls you to remember that you are the reason Christ came and that you are the reason Christ died. And that you are the reason Christ rose again. So that you will believe that God you follow 
is God of glory and grace and goodness. 